0: Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week, designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks for listening for the week of December 11th, 2023. Arizona's Supreme Court is considering whether Arizona should ban almost all abortions or allow them early in pregnancy. Katherine Davis-Young has a preview of the case.
1: When the U.S. Supreme Court last year returned abortion-regulating powers to states, Arizona had two abortion laws on the books. One passed last year outlaws abortions after 15 weeks. The other, which dates back to 1864, bans abortions in almost all cases. Abortion providers didn't know which to follow. It was a very dark time to be a physician. Dr. Jill Gibson is medical director for Planned Parenthood Arizona. As state courts have tried to work through the legal chaos, Planned Parenthood canceled appointments and sent patients out of state, only to then reopen with short staff and a new set of rules. But for almost a year now, there's been some clarity. The Arizona Court of Appeals last December said the 1864 near-total ban should continue to apply, but only for non-physicians. Doctors, on the other hand, could follow the newer law, and could provide abortions up to 15 weeks. Now the state's Supreme Court will reconsider that ruling. Gibson says she's frustrated to be faced with legal uncertainty once again.
2: That was decided and we, you know, we're comfortable with that interpretation. And I think we all have been able to move forward past that point. And so we just feel like this is a baseless attempt to bring ideology back into a personal decision between a patient and their provider.
1: In earlier phases of this case, it was Arizona's then Attorney General, Republican Mark Bernovich, who was pushing for the courts to reinstate the older, more restrictive law. But the new Attorney General, Democrat Chris Mays, is no longer pursuing the case. Instead, Dr. Eric Hazelrig, medical director of a group of Phoenix-area anti-abortion pregnancy centers, has stepped in as an intervener. He's joined by Yavapai County Attorney Dennis McGrain.
3: Dr. Hazelrig and Mr. McGrainer in this case, to protect Arizona's pro-life law that protects these most vulnerable among us.
1: Jacob Warner is an attorney with the organization Alliance Defending Freedom, representing Hazelrigg and McGrain. He argues the Court of Appeals overlooked a critical piece of text in the 15-week law that makes direct reference to the older law.
3: Lawmakers were clear. What they said was that these Roe-era abortion regulations, they create no right to an abortion. And it doesn't repeal the old pro-life law.
1: Justices may see a point there, says Barbara Atwood, professor of law emerita with the University of Arizona.
3: I think the legal argument that might be persuasive to them is that the Court of Appeals was too creative in its effort to harmonize these laws. Planned Parenthood attorneys
1: declined to provide an interview for this story. But in court documents, they say this case really isn't about whether abortion should be legal, but what the state should do when two statutes conflict. And Atwood says justices might agree.
3: The justices may in their personal lives be very anti-abortion, but vote to affirm what the Court of Appeals did because they agree with that statutory method.
1: And the justices, all appointed by Republican governors, are known to be conservative. Justice Bill Montgomery, who has publicly accused Planned Parenthood of genocide, has recused himself from this case. If the six remaining justices were to decide abortions are illegal in the state, except in life-saving circumstances, there is still a question of enforcement. Democratic Attorney General Chris Mays would not comment on the pending case. But she has said she would not prosecute doctors for performing abortions. And Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs has issued an executive order to give May's, not county attorneys, the final say when it comes to abortion. Atwood says that move could lead to more
3: challenges. I think that that's an unresolved issue.
1: Outwood says a separate political battle could play out if the justices were to decide that it's not their job, but that of the legislature to sort out Arizona's conflicting abortion laws. That also, of course, is going
3: to be a messy situation since we've got a a legislature and an executive branch that are at odds. And Atwood points out abortion
1: advocates are already pursuing a 2024 ballot measure that would expand abortion access far beyond either of the laws the state Supreme Court is considering.
3: I don't know that that will be in the back of any justices' minds, but it's certainly a part of the picture.
1: So the state's high court will have the final say in this case. But Atwood says legal conflicts over abortion in Arizona are likely far from over. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: In Fronteras News. Like cities around the U.S. and the world, Tucson has seen protests and civil actions calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and an end to U.S. military support for Israel. Raytheon is the second largest arms manufacturer in the U.S. and has facilities in Tucson where some of those weapons are made. From the Fronteras desk, Elisa Resnick has more. In a public address about military funding
4: requests in October, President Biden called out Arizona as a weapons manufacturing site.
5: Patriot missiles for air defense batteries made in Arizona.
4: The Patriot missile is an air defense system used by the U.S. and several of its allies, including Israel. Components for that weapon and many others are made by Raytheon in Tucson. It's the city's largest private employer. The company has a more than $2.6 billion annual economic impact statewide, according to a 2019 study by ASU's Seidman Research Institute. The institute's director, Dennis Hoffman, says today it's likely even more. It's going to be well into the 3 to $4 billion range in terms of annual economic impact, primarily in the Tucson
2: metro area.
4: Nathan, Nathan, you can on! Raytheon, Raytheon, Demonstrations in the last several weeks have honed in on just that. Like last month, when about 80 people laid down with signs and white sheets over their bodies for over an hour in front of an entrance to a Raytheon plant on Tucson's south side. The sound of airplanes could be heard overhead as cars blocked from getting inside honked and made U-turns. The latest airstrikes in Gaza were triggered by an attack by the Palestinian militant group Hamas, which took more than 200 hostages and killed at least 1,200 people in Israel on October 7th according to Israeli authorities. Health officials in Gaza say more than 17,000 people have been killed in Israeli airstrikes there since then. Raytheon declined to comment on the protests at its facilities in Tucson or its economic impact in Arizona. But in an October earnings call, the company's CEO, Greg Hayes, said the company stood to benefit from the increased Department of Defense budget stemming from the conflicts in Gaza and Ukraine.
0: It's not news to us. We've been aware of this for a long time. We've been trying to sound the alarm about what a war economy Arizona is building and how many residents of Arizona would staunchly disagree with that. That's Muna Hijazi.
4: She's a community organizer with the Arizona-Palestine Solidarity Alliance, or APSA, one of the groups at the protest. She says her group has been trying for years to raise awareness about the shared issues between Palestinian communities and the U.S.-Mexico border.
0: The same security company, that has built the apartheid wall in Palestine and Israel is building the security towers on the U.S.-Mexico border.
1: You could do C-U-K.
4: Yeah. At another protest at the University of Arizona Tech Park later in November, more than 20 people were arrested after protesters blocked the entrance to Raytheon and other roadways inside the park. Protesters would not give their full names, but said they wanted to disrupt the flow of business at the park and draw attention to the conflict in Gaza. That message hits close to home for Tucson resident Mohadin Abdulaziz, another community activist with APSA. He's been in town for 40 years, but he was born in the West Bank in a Palestinian village called Imoas.
2: I lived the story of Palestine. I was born in 1947, and that's the year, you know, a year later... Israel was created.
4: Emoas was captured and parts of it were destroyed by Israeli forces in 1967. But Abdulaziz says it took years longer for that story to be told. Now he feels like he's seeing the same thing happen again. He says Raytheon's place in Tucson has long been an issue groups have focused on. But as Hoffman, the economist at ASU, points out, the arms industry is a Tucson mainstay not just because of Raytheon, but also because of its predecessor, Hughes Aircraft, which produced weapons here until being bought by Raytheon in the 1990s. I understand uh, that some people have angst over the products that these folks uh, produce, but candidly, across uh, the entire state, the Department of Defense, investments have been really very key. Hoffman estimates Raytheon provides at least 30,000 Arizona jobs, all told, including almost 13,000 direct employees in Tucson. Abdulaziz says he understands the economic importance, but he wants to see that talent directed to other projects.
2: These are companies that have great technical capabilities, and they can easily, you know, change course and produce products that helps humanity instead of destroying it. He
4: says he knows that won't happen overnight. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ
0: News, Tucson. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In education news. At a meeting Wednesday night with the State Board of Regents, the University of Arizona announced that it's making immediate changes to address a budget shortfall of $240 million. Cameron Sanchez reports.
1: U of A President Robert Robbins told the Board of Regents, which oversees the state's public universities, that having low cash on hand is the product of a dysfunctional system.
0: The cash on hand only reflects the overall health of the university financial situation. It's a symptom, not the core problem. And we will work to address the university's finance, as we work to address the university's finance, we'll focus on the disease and not the symptoms.
1: Robbins announced a number of immediate changes, including a hiring freeze, delaying planned salary increases, and ending tuition guarantees. He also announced that Chief Financial Officer Lisa Runley has resigned. Robbins assured the board that student aid is not on the chopping block. The board also proposed much stricter financial policies for the state's three public universities going forward. Cameron Sanchez, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: In business news, Phoenix will soon require certain property owners to register with the city. As Christina Estes reports from our business desk, the goal is to reduce blight. The Phoenix City Council
3: approved an ordinance creating a vacant property registry. Owners of vacant lots over 10,000 square feet Vacant commercial properties and vacant residential properties with more than 50 units must register online. Councilwoman Betty Cuadado said property rights come with responsibilities. Too many out-of-state and absentee owners allow their properties to turn to blight and disrepair by leaving them vacant. The vacant property registry takes effect in January. When owners register, the city will share ways to prevent the most common complaints like graffiti and trespassing. Enforcement will begin in February and could involve fines between $500 and $2,500 if violations are not corrected. Christina Estes, KJZZ News,
0: Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. And now from the show, a new movie and its filmmaker. Here's co-host Lauren Gilger.
2: There is a heartwarming new documentary that's winning a whole lot of awards on the festival circuit that's showing in Scottsdale this week only. It's called Mom and Dad's Nipple Factory, and it's about one couple's journey after breast cancer and the subsequent and a subsequent mastectomy when they figure out how to create ultra-realistic and difficult-to-produce prosthetic nipples. And it was made by their son, Emmy-winning filmmaker Justin Johnson, a.k.a. Justin Superstar. I spoke with him more about it.
5: My parents are these incredible polar opposites. Mm -hmm. And it's a thing where like when I was a kid, I'd always think, oh, well, mom, she's the fun one. And dad, he's just kind of quiet and boring. So as I started making this film and as I started really telling people some of these stories from our childhood about all these like weird little inventions that my dad would make Mm -hmm. or like little businesses that he would start, I started to really understand, oh, my dad's actually also really interesting. And so they have this incredible, like, introvert, extrovert, like, the most polar opposite sides of both. And it's pretty amazing that they, like, really genuinely make that work. They're very interesting characters. And the thing about making a documentary is you kind of distill the subjects into characters. Yeah. And so that, like, as you can imagine, distilling your parents into characters. (laughs) It's an interesting process.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that as we go here. Um, So in this documentary, you're telling their story um, in one of these inventions that your dad made. And it happened after your mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to have a unilateral mastectomy. Tell us a little bit about, first of all, about your memories of that. Like, Do you remember her being diagnosed and what this process was like?
5: A big part of the, this film's journey is, is also my own, my own journey. And this is what was kind of shocking to me as well, is I really became somewhat estranged from my parents. And I think a lot of that was their religious background, and there was just a lot of, of pushiness around that. And so when my mom told us all about cancer, I had just moved to New York City for a job at a startup And I really just became like fully absorbed in New York City life. And when I went back to look through some of my archival records and dig in through my old emails, I found this email from my mom that says, hey, you know, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer. Here's the next steps, this, that, the other thing. Mm -hmm. I was pretty shocked to find that I actually hadn't even replied to her for a week. And it wasn't like I called her right away and I didn't email her till later. Like I really was so absorbed in this New York City life and really kind of consider my parents like boring people who lived (laughs) in Wisconsin, that that was pretty, pretty heartbreaking and pretty shattering for me to realize the depth of just how distant I had grown.
2: Wow, yeah. So bring us from there to, you know, you obviously going back there for some significant amount of time to make this film, them agreeing to have you make a film about them. How did that happen?
5: Well, it started as all great things start with with a lie (laughs) unintentionally. I told them, so I just finished my first feature documentary and had done a little film festival run and I really wanted to get something else out there. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to make a documentary short and it's going to be about my dad building me a third nipple. So really that (laughs) after my mom's mastectomy and And all that, like the nipple construction process was my dad's like latest innovation. So I'm like, it's going to be called my dad's nipple factory. And it's going to be this father-son bonding moment. And I shot some of it and I just couldn't figure out like the heart of it because even at six or seven minutes, I'm like, okay, this is kind of cute. Like it's interesting and I just really struggled with what was this thing gonna be. It wasn't until I found the core of the story really is my parents' love story. Yeah. And it's not and that is like the sort of lengths that, especially my dad, who's very I'm, 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 both my parents are very conservative, the lengths that they go to to burst outside of some of those norms in terms of just being open with female nudity, you know, mm-hmm. very specifically. And and this this thing which is very can be very sexualized, but is like a of course, a very important aesthetic part. Yeah. Functional, very raising children and everything, but like a very important part of someone's identity.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So they were not the type to to really want to talk about nipples in public, but found themselves in this position. Did they kind of keep it a secret, it sounds like?
5: It was definitely a secret. And it, and it was in that classic kind of Midwest secret of <laughs> when I brought that up with my parents, they're like, well, it wasn't really a secret. We just didn't talk about it. Okay. Well, yeah, but you got this locked room filled with like nipples that we can't get into (laughs) (laughs) like, okay, that's like a secret. Right. Um, And so part of this was really freeing for them to, I can have very long discussions with my dad about like space rockets and electric cars, but for us to talk about this, thing that he had spent years perfecting and developing. Mm -hmm. And for him to get into a space where he could feel open talking about that, I could really see those floodgates open. And and all of a sudden he's like, and then I figured this out and then I did this and then I did this. (laughs) And I'm having this incredible like hour long conversation with my dad about nipples, something I never would have expected as a kid. That's really cool. (laughs)
2: So tell me a little bit about the science of this and like how he did it and why no one had really come up with this before. It sounds like making a prosthetic nipple is actually incredibly hard.
5: There's a lot of factors. And really, one of the main ones is just having the edges be extremely thin. And so when you're dealing with silicone, it just is like a very, it can be a very finicky process. So when my dad was looking at the, at the market of other options out there, especially 15 years ago mm-hmm. in, in 2007 there just wasn't a lot out there. And really specifically for people who have been through the unilateral, you have still your original side. So for my dad, it was using the same brain that he had used when he worked at a supercomputer company or when he was devising devices to make sure we didn't watch too much TV. It was this idea of, I'm going to take this to its logical conclusion. And really, it's not a patentable thing, but it was the care he put into developing just the molding process and then especially the color matching and really first for my mom but then as it grew for other people that have been through this that just want to feel whole again and feel like they don't have to look in the mirror and think about cancer
2: right right it's so personal in that way tell us justin how big this has become right like i mean all of these women that they've been able to help it's it's grown it sounds like exponentially
5: It has. I mean, the growth is limited by the fact it's just my mom and dad. (laughs) (laughs) And I think they did something like 500 within the first three years. And then now they're at over 5,000 nipples that they've made Mm -hmm. for people around the world. But when you're talking about it, like, it's not like my dad is going around driving a BMW with Nipple King custom plates, right? Like, they make... (laughs) I think it was something like $10,000, right? Right, right? Like it's it's very much a passion project. It's a ministry for them and it's a way for them to spend their golden years together.
2: Yeah. What do your parents think of the film and of you making a movie about this?
5: Yes, yeah, so my my parents, especially my dad is a very shy, very mm-hmm. very quiet, introverted person and so this is a story that in a lot of ways, I consider the fact that this film exists is his gift to me as his son because he loves me. They weren't looking for publicity, but <laughs> so we, our premiere was at the Milwaukee Film Festival and, and we were lucky enough to be their opening night film. So we had hmm. the sold out thousand seat theater. It was unbelievable. We got multiple standing ovations. Uh, my, <laughs> most of my family was there. And um, afterwards, when we asked dad, oh, OK, what would you think of the film? Dad said, well, I think it's well made. I just wish I wasn't in it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And I'm like, Dad, it's, you know, you're kind of an important part of it. But I, but I think that's kind of in a world where everyone is obsessed with getting famous, getting their 15 minutes, mm-hmm. getting their 15 seconds of fame, whatever it is. I think it's really refreshing to see people like my dad who really truly don't want to be on camera. But in a lot hmm. of ways. It was understanding that my parents are movie stars. That was another kind of Mm -hmm. evolution of this process because they really do shine on screen and they really are delightful people.
2: Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about it. That is Justin Johnson, AKA Justin Superstar. Justin, thanks again.
5: Thank you.
0: In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. On Wednesday, 12 geographic regional caucuses convened to talk about Native issues, from discrimination to the looming farm bill, at the Intertribal Agriculture Council annual conference. Gabriel Pietrazzio has more.
2: All the other regions have maybe uh, anywhere from 30 to 100 different tribes. Navajo is its own.
5: Ray Castillo is in charge of the region caucus for Diné, who travel from all corners of Navajo land, which is larger than at least 10 states, depending on the year. Castillo says as many as 100. 20 members show up.
2: But It's just basically uh, dependent on who come and voice their concerns and issues.
5: It's also been a venue where Navajo producers breathe laundry in the form of beef, as he puts it. And part of the problem is a lot of people try to resolve it here, and that's not what this is about. More than 16,000 Navajo farmers and ranchers make up a fifth of all producers across Indian country. For KJZZ News, I'm Gabriel Pietarazio reporting from... From las vegas
0: and finally in science news water management in the drought stressed west is complicated by the interplay between mountains and what is known as the el nino southern oscillation now new research clarifies how enso affects the west differently in the south than in the north from our arizona science desk nicholas gerbis
2: reports el nino tends to bring wetter winters to arizona and new mexico but drier ones to utah and wyoming but how did the Sierra Nevadas, which tend to ring air dry as it climbs their western slopes, soaking California on the one side and leaving the east high and dry, mitigate ENSO's effects? Using more than 150 years of river gauge data tied to elevation, the paper in Nature Water shows southwestern winter wetness varied with El Niño intensity, like a volume knob, but northern states, with their more complex topography, either saw changes or didn't, like a light switch, regardless of ENSO's strength.